I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Eric Galinkin, a principal AI researcher at security firm Rapid7, about a recent ransomware research report examining attack trends in sectors, including the healthcare and pharmaceutical industries. So, Eric, for starters, please briefly tell us what your study examined. For instance, I understand that you particularly investigated trends involving double extortion. What did you find? The report focuses very specifically on double extortion. So double extortion, for anybody who's unfamiliar, is this trend in ransomware where essentially they uh, hit you the first time with the actual ransomware and then kind of back over you again to make sure that you pay. So the notion that they're going for is, you know, some people have have a lot of backups, the amount of backups have really ticked up. And, and so it's tougher for these, uh, these ransomware groups, you know, as bad as I can possibly feel for any group that does ransomware, which is, is not very much, they're having a lot of people choosing not to pay. And so in order to kind of put pressure on those pain points, they have started stealing data in addition to just encrypting the data. And so if if they say, hey, pay us, and you say, uh, no, thank you, I, I actually have backups, they say, well, here's a bunch of data that we have, and we're going to leak it if you don't pay. And so what we looked at was specifically this first layer of data disclosure, this initial disclosure that is designed to get the victims to pay. And victims who don't pay, of course, have the entire trove of stolen data leaked. But some victims after that initial disclosure do pay. And so we looked at a subset of these events. Uh, These were events that our analysts determined were significant enough to report to people who were not affected. And so that was 161 different uh, disclosures between April of 2020 and February of 2022. And in looking at that data, we kind of pulled out a couple of trends. So some of the big trends were around the groups themselves, uh, right? The Mays ransomware group was this huge ransomware group that collapsed in November of 2020. And so in 2020, we saw that they had, you know, a huge uh, market share. But after they collapsed, Throughout 2021 and into 2022, we saw a number of smaller groups crop up in their place. And then we saw some of the second tier players like Conti and Arrival start to uh, take up some of that slack. And, and Klopp was another one that really expanded their market share, so to speak, in, in 2021 and 2022. So we, we looked at it from that perspective, but we also looked at the particular types of data that were leaked. So we found that across all industries, there was a big tendency to leak uh, certain types of data. We found that customer data was very, very commonly leaked across all sectors. We found that employee information was relatively common to be leaked. But once we started breaking it down a little bit more, finance and accounting, et cetera, we found that there were three sectors that actually deviated from the overall trends. And that was financial services and then the healthcare and pharmaceutical industries. And even though we initially grouped healthcare and pharmaceutical together, what we found was that once we separated them, there were actually distinct trends that were different between healthcare. So you think of like 
a hospital group, you think of a, an insurer, right? Some, some healthcare organization and specifically pharmaceutical. So as a, as a really illustrative example, when we grouped them together, we found that there was a decent amount of intellectual property being leaked. And pharmaceutical was notable because that had, as an industry, the highest proportion of intellectual property that was being leaked. But healthcare actually didn't have any intellectual property leaked. So once we separated healthcare and pharmaceutical industries into separate industries, we actually noted even more pronounced trends between the two. And this was interesting because it really suggests that these attackers are not just stealing data willy-nilly and leaking it. Maybe they are stealing data, right? I can't speak to how they're stealing data, but I would love to interview them uh, if I ever got the chance. But they're leaking the data in, in a really targeted way that shows that they're really considering what it is that they're choosing to release in this first layer disclosure. So Eric, with that said, when you looked at the data that was leaked in healthcare, and pharmaceutical, and you mentioned that there are differences. Generally, what sort of data was leaked in healthcare incidents and the type of intellectual property, for instance, that you saw leaked in the pharmaceutical attacks? In healthcare, I think the, the number one was financial and accounting documents. And I think that the big thing with financial and accounting documents is that they demonstrate a level of access, right? If I have access to your internal financial statements, if I have access to your insurance documents, then I probably have access to quite a bit of information. In healthcare, we also saw a lot of customer and patient data was leaked. And that is, of course, hugely impactful because healthcare data is highly, highly regulated, right? HIPAA is, is a real thing, and leaking this essentially forces the hand of that healthcare provider to not only follow normal HIPAA procedures, but also you know, notify their customers who are now also victims that their data has very directly been compromised. In healthcare, we didn't see a lot of like employee data was not very common to be leaked, right? The HR data was not as common as it was in other fields, but those two, the customer and patient data and the financial data were super, super common in healthcare, uh, more than in other industries. And then in pharmaceuticals, uh, we saw that again, finance and accounting was number one, right? And I think that for a lot of for a lot of industries, that is just a, a demonstration of their reach, right? It is we have your financial statements, we have your tax statements, we have your insurance statements. These are sensitive documents that everybody understands necessitate a pretty high level of access. But we saw a lot less uh, customer data in the pharmaceuticals than we did that finance and accounting. But across all industries, pharmaceutical was the highest one that leaked intellectual property. And a lot of times those were patent documents or draft patent documents. Those were information about drugs in testing or development. These are kind of core properties for the pharmaceutical industry. And they were leaked in pharmaceuticals more than we saw them leaked in any other industry. And when it came to the leaked intellectual property in the pharmaceutical sector, you know, such as patents and that sort of thing. Is there perhaps a third layer of crime that's taking place after this industrial espionage, you know, 
they leak some of this intellectual property, but then these hackers might have a lot more information than they're leaking that could be beneficial to a competitor somewhere, maybe else, somewhere else in the world or wherever. You see any of that happening or evidence that that could happen? Without getting too deep into conjecture, I think that it is the knowledge that that could happen that is why they choose to release these documents. Because I don't, I don't necessarily think the ransomware actors are trying to incite that industrial espionage or, or that leaking information on drugs in testing or development before they've had a patent granted or whatever, because these are financially motivated actors, right? So when they release intellectual property on drugs in development or things like that, they are trying to show this, this pharmaceutical company, we have access to this kind of data. And if you don't pay us, we will release everything we have, right? And of course, for a lot of pharmaceutical companies, those patents, that's that's the way that they make sure that they get first to market. That's the way that they make sure that they're first to be uh, approved, right? It's It's a huge pressure point that those attackers really lean on. So it is not so much setting up a third layer of crime as it is allowing that to potentially flourish, right? And and it does suggest that they know that this is what pharmaceutical companies are worried about. And it's a way to get those pharmaceutical companies to pay the ransom before what else we have could be leaked. A lot of times you don't have a ton of time to try and understand what these actors have stolen beyond what they've told you they've stolen. So it's that uncertainty, right? That what else could they have gotten that strikes fear into these companies, into these victims, and makes them think, well, if they stole this, they might also have this, and we don't want that to get out. So, you know, let's let's pay that ransom, right? These ransomware threat actors, you know, some of them are political, right? Some of them are certainly political, and they've made public statements uh, aligning themselves with certain political movements and certain uh, nation states. But the majority of them have also put out statements that make it very clear that, hey, we're a business. We just want to get paid, and we're going to do what it takes to get paid. We just want the money. So, Eric, how are ransomware attack trends morphing? For instance, what about triple extortion? Are you seeing much of that yet where, for instance, a healthcare entity is attacked, you have the attackers demanding a ransom for the return, and then you have maybe patients being contacted or even in other industries, you know, the individual consumers that are affected uh, being told that, hey, we have your personal information and we're going to put it out on the dark web if you don't pay. Do you see much of that yet? Not as much. So the triple extortion, and I've even heard people talking about uh, quadruple extortion. Uh, I assume that we are just going to have a taxonomy of extortions moving forward. But what we, we see a little bit of that, but mostly that is a lot of work. And something that I think is worth underscoring, these are attackers who operate at scale. They want to operate at scale. They want big payouts. Of course they do. But they're okay with a lot of small to medium-sized payouts, right? They don't need to wring every drop out of it. So there's definitely been some reporting on triple extortion, and we've seen a little bit of this multi-layered extortion 
Um, we've seen the DDoS extortion. We've seen just this repeated stages. But targeting the downstream victims becomes a little bit harder. It goes to the, the customers, it goes to the clients, it goes to suppliers, and it says, hey, we know this about you and we'll leak it. But I don't know that that will become as widespread because that is really lower on the value chain for them than getting into another victim, unless those people or companies, right, the suppliers or, or clients that they have information about are high value targets themselves. And in that case, I think that we we do and probably will see a little bit more of that knock-on activity, that third layer, if you will. So finally, Eric, based on what you see in the healthcare and pharmaceutical industries, what's your advice to those industries in terms of trying to stay ahead of some of these ransomware trends? I think that the the biggest advice that I give anybody is that for a lot of this stuff and, and preventing a lot of these attacks, the ransomware in the first place, the double extortion, the triple extortion, all of this is a lot about getting back to basics and doing the basics well. So we see that when it comes to lateral movement, there are trends in the way that these threat actors like to move around networks. There are certain credentials that they're interested in using. There are certain pieces of, of software like Mimikatz. There are certain techniques like Kerberosting that they use to get credentials that they can use to move from system to system to system to collect this data to compromise additional users and then encrypt those systems in the end. So things like separation of privileges, having your sysadmins have a user account and an admin account to do admin things, right? Uh, so that they're not checking their email with the same account that they're using to perform administrative activities. Patching, having a patching plan and a patching cadence and, and looking out for guidance on patching. Multi-factor authentication has been a really great way to kind of maneuver around these attackers. Are all things that most security professionals know are best practices, but when we adhere to them, we see that ransomware attackers are a lot less successful. And then with the double extortion trend, I think that even thinking about the age-old principle of least privilege, does someone need access to this data? It's much easier for a ransomware actor to compromise one person and then get administrative access and be able to get access to any and all of the data with that one compromised set of credentials and move around the network than it is if they have to compromise three or four or five users to get those intellectual property documents, to get those financial documents and, and get those customer information documents, right? If they have to compromise a large number of users to get access to the data that they want, it's a lot more work and it's more likely to set off the alarm bells. So just having those, those defense in depth strategies, that separation of duties, that principle of least privilege, and then being aware of what data is likely to be targeted in your network, all of that can help you respond to and prioritize events. Because if we're being honest, a lot of healthcare companies in particular, you know, you think of like a regional hospital, 
they don't have large security staffs. So they have to respond very carefully and they need to cut through the noise. So if we can put additional controls around the data that's likely to be leaked, that's likely to be sensitive, and then separate those duties, separate those privileges, that'll make it harder for attackers to move around and it'll make it easier for defenders to really defend against these attacks. They are emerging trends, but the solutions to the problems are ones that security practitioners have, have really been talking about for ages. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I've been speaking to Eric Galinkin. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for joining us.